I, um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode ten of season two, featuring special guest. Anika Prather. Folk Phenomenology is generously supported by Whippenstock Publishers, Voice and Truth, from Biblical Studies to Classic Theology, Poetry to Philosophy, our authors are experts, scholars, and artists. St. Mark's College Center for Christian Engagement, nurturing the dialogue between Christians in the life of the academy and that of larger society. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. U.S. Catholic, faith and real life. Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos. To support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and leave a review or drop a tip. You can also follow Folk Phenomenology on Twitter and Facebook. Anika, welcome to Folk Phenomenology. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am just really happy uh, that you've been willing to come on to the show. I know our uh, schedules have taken a while to get us here to this point where we're finally yes. talking to each other. Um, you know, usually I tell folks uh, how, you know, how or when or some details about our relationship and what have you. And in, and in your case, I remember distinctly... Uh, reading uh, Cornell West's column uh, about the classics at Howard mm-hmm. and uh, quickly uh, finding you, uh, I think, in that time and during that period of, yes. of that particular issue on Twitter. And yes. it's just really been a, a joy to follow you since then and to Whoa. interact a bit and whatnot. So why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself and, and about your work and, uh, and, and we'll go from there. Okay, um, so as you said, my name is Anika Prather, and I, um, first and foremost, I'm a wife, I'm a mom. Um, those are my most important titles to me. Uh, then I founded a school, at, we're in our eighth year now, called the Living Water School. It started out as a brick-and-mortar school um, that combined classical learning with the Sudbury model, or democratic schooling. Um And democratic schooling is when students just have a lot of say in their educational journey and in the structure and and, um, 
framework of the school. Um, they vote on everything. They have a voice on everything. Um, and then the, the and it was a, a beautiful environment in person. The, vi- uh, the virus came. And as it was coming, it hadn't gotten to the United States yet. My husband, um, who has a degree in computer engineering, said, you know, your school is going to be very hard to function online because it's very... It's very much about community and connecting with one another um, and seeing everyone as equals and just building community through natural human relationships and that a lot of learning happens in that process. And he said, so you need to begin to think that if the virus comes here, because if you don't figure out how to put this online, your school is done. Mm -hmm. So I had like 30 days to figure it out. And I did it in consult. I know this sounds kind of long, but just want you to understand how we got to this place where we are now. Um, I didn't make it up myself. When he said that, I called a meeting with the students. Hey, if we went online, how can we make this still be what it feels like now? Um, And the students um, gave things like, we need to get together once a week, even if it's outside. So we voted to go hiking every week. So through the whole pandemic, the whole school would go hiking every single Mm. week at different parks around the D.C. metropolitan area. The other thing is they needed... Um, they didn't want the online school just to be about them sitting and looking at a screen and being lectured to. Um, so um, in the school, physically, we had interest groups that met throughout the school day. So we turned those interest groups into online interest groups, and they're student-led. So we have a gaming club, there's a crochet club, an origami club, a drama club, you know, like all different types of STEM, um, dance, all these different clubs. So um, we were able to use Zoom to create the links so that students can just hop on and get into their interest groups. Um, and, so th- and so we just basically had to really think through how to take this community and make it an online, vibrant community. And so when the virus finally got here, um, oh, we met with the students, then we met with parents or what they needed from us to make this meaningful for their household. And then from that, we created this plan for being online. So. Now we're a virtual school because we began to enroll students from out of state Mm. and the parents liked having them at home. I think it's with kind of the, Mm. the dangers of schooling right now with just parents are feeling that insecurity with school shootings. They voted to stay online, but yet we still get together once a week, one to two times a week. We go on field trips and then we still have this vibrant online community. Um, Okay. So that's the living water school. We're going into our eighth year. We're about to be a, Hopefully, we passed our visitation with Middle States, so we are being um, recommended for full accreditation with Middle States, so I'm really excited about that. Mm. We moved from Maryland to Northern Virginia, so our building is in in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, Um, but we're still online. We use the building for meetings and get-togethers and things like that. So then I'm also a professor right now uh, at Howard University, where I teach Humanities 1 and 2. I am sadly, with a lot of tears, leaving Howard University to go Mm. full-time at Johns Hopkins. It started part-time over the summer, and I've just fallen in love with the work of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins, where David Steiner is the director and Ashley Berner is the executive director, and um, I'll be leaving there Friday uh, and going full-fledged at Johns Hopkins. So um, that's me in a nutshell. Wow. Well, there, there is uh, a lot of, not only, um, obviously, things there, but a, a lot of, uh, 
overlaps and converging interests and uh, I almost don't know where to begin, but um, <laughs> I, I suppose maybe um, I'll, I'll maybe make a, a, a kind of a blunt entry into at least one of the issues that I've seen you uh, curate, uh, moderate. Um, there's a particular kind of a discussion uh, and, and, and also it'll also give you an opportunity maybe to even expand your introduction into some some other work yeah. <laughs> you can go into because because yes. we all have to you know we give give certain portraits of our lives but yes you know um, all right so directly you and I both I think uh, have a particular shared formation in yes. something like what some might call the Western classical tradition. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think both of us have uh, an, uh, different degrees, but I think positive and ultimately see it as a potentially transformative yes. uh, educational uh, resource. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would even call it maybe even like a cultural resource, like, yep. a, a, you know. Um, mm, I like that, yes. And I think you and I also, uh, maybe again to different degrees, um, are not naive <laughs> about the ways in which this Western classical tradition uh, has been historically and continues to be presently and might be continue to be in the future yeah. deployed for different kinds of cultural yes. poli uh, politics and projects um, <laughs> among them. Uh, the uh, historical project of white supremacy. Yeah, yes. Um, and nonetheless, <laughs> here we are, uh, and there you are doing the work you're doing. Um, you know, uh, I wonder if you might speak a bit to, to that, because I know that your roots in what we might call classical education, you are not one of these new, you know, discovered you know, Dante day before yesterday and decided to start a school. <laughs> I know your roots go really deep with classical education yeah. and in particular with black classical education. Yes. And yes. so if I may, if we could maybe start to carve into that, um, I love that you led with the democratic element of your school, but, yeah. uh, but I wonder if, if that's a part of the work we could also work in, you know, yeah. dig yes. into. Yes. Okay. I, I was really reflecting on the, your question um, recently. Um, and I went through a phase of feeling discouraged at first because um, you can just see how I feel um, negative. Um, people are misusing this type of education for very selfish means, uh, white supremacist means. Um, I'm even against black people using it as a way to feel smarter than like, I just, mm. I just, I, or to feel like, Oh, I know these. So now I'm a scholar. I, I don't agree with right. that either. Um, uh. And I feel like people have overcomplicated its purpose and its use. It's really simply this body of knowledge. It's just something ancestors left behind. And when I say ancestors, I'm not just talking about black ancestors. I'm talking sure. about all the people that have come before us. Um, 
left behind for us to just kind of have these guidebooks for living. Um, and, and that challenge us to think through our worldviews and to make the necessary adjustment, adjustments and so on. But I see it being misused for a totally different purpose. And so this week, I was just really kind of thinking through that um, and, and feeling discouraged, especially as I constantly see news reports come out of people who are leading classical schools who turn out to be racist or have a white supremacist agenda. And here I am, this chocolate woman from Howard University, literally can say born and raised at Howard University. Yeah. Almost. Um, um, still saying, hey, we should all educate. And right. I feel almost ashamed, almost afraid. So you're catching me at a really interesting moment in my life mm. where I am not doubting, but questioning this what I'm doing and and making sure that what I'm doing is the most truthful, effective, and meaningful and positive way. And then I finally realized that it is a really imperative, and I kind of alluded to this at another podcast I did this week with um it was a podcast put up by Notre Dame um, this earlier this week, that I I realize now that I really want to raise my voice to invite all of us who see this in a healthy way to become a collective voice. Hmm. Um, and that we, we really are engaged. And a lot of different people have said battle of the classics and they're trying to defend the classics. Right. And I'm still for that, but I think the battle is a little bit different than just defending the classics. It's defending. Hmm. Um, it's more so um, defending the right way to engage with classical learning. Because um, people throughout history have misused classical learning. You know, right. I, mean, I think even some of the greatest dictators read classics and found yeah. inspiration and ideas from these texts. Machiavelli has, you know, inspired some of the most notorious dictators we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are going to miss, that is, people are going to misuse this body of work like they misuse other things. My mom says she's a deeply deep Christian woman and she'll say God is the great provider and with that I'll say God has provided the wisdom of these old texts right and then she'll say but Satan is the great perverter and I know this is not a religious podcast but if Mm -hmm. I were to take that Mm -hmm. and make it a secular thought these texts are provided to us but it's up to us on whether or not we use them properly or we pervert their use. And I want, I, I think right now with this work, with the work I'm doing at the Living Water School, with the work I'm seeking to do at Howard and um, now at Johns Hopkins, is I want to become a voice that shows the right way. Recognizing the wrong way is just going to be there. I can't, I'm not able to stop those who would want to misuse this body of knowledge and this way of learning and teaching. I can't do anything about that. Right. But I can become a, a blowhorn to say, no, no, don't look over here. Not that way. Let's, let's try it this way. And to, to hopefully inspire all of us who feel this way to, instead of having our own separate events and programs and articles Mm. and we're doing this work over here and I'm doing this work over here, but we're saying the same thing. Mm. It's not, we're all collect, because I'll stop it here. Those who are misusing classical learning 
and and promoting a negative way of reading these texts are a collective voice. They are working and strategizing mm. together. Yeah. And so, because you'll go and you'll see them in the same spaces. They're connected. They're mm-hmm. writing. They're promoting each other's literature. They're sponsoring gatherings and so on and so forth. Um, and, and there are some of us who are kind of in those spaces, hoping that we can be a voice in those spaces to redirect and inspire. Yeah. But I don't know if that's working. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really a time for those of us who see this in the right way to pull together. It's really imperative to not allow ourselves to get tied up in the whirlwind of that negativity, mm-hmm. but that we come away and become a collective voice. So that's my new thinking uh, right wow. now. Well, I, um, I think it's in line with the pedagogical work you're doing in terms of, I didn't realize, in fact, that your, um, your school uh, was built on that Sudbury model. Mm-hmm. I think that already if if i can just kind of get excited a bit here um i think already there is something really radical in the classical sense uh, mm-hmm. about what you're doing in this in the idea of, of 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 combining the tradition really of democratic education yeah. which was um born by people yes. who believed yeah in that emancipatory yep. liberationist message yep. of uh, of that particular canonical or classical yep. tradition yep. Um, and who were not provincial by the way yep. about how much or what exactly was included in the canon i've always said it's a canon of everything right yeah. <laughs> i love that yes um so the idea of, uh, of combining some would this movement has gone by the name of progressive education mm-hmm. you know in yes. some cases and times and um but to combine that with you could say the tradition yes. the ancestors like you said yes that's a model frankly that uh we don't see i, I do rec- there's a text from the 30s by john dewey called experience yes. and education yes um yeah that's text, my dissertation yes yeah to me that text is so powerful because here we have the kind of patron saint of progressive education, democratic education, who for the first good half, if not two thirds of the book is basically saying, whoa, 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 we need to be really careful about building a progressive education that is naively against tradition or that doesn't appreciate the the necessities of certain forms of, he even talks about social control and all that, you know? Um, and I think another thing people forget sometimes um, is that the uh, architects of these movements uh, in in education, but also I think outside of them, um, and this would include what the movements people would would use the word critical to to describe. Um, these folks often read the classics yeah. and were trained in the classics yes. and were educated in the yes. classics and wrote from that tradition um with uh certainly with 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 a reflexive ability but none of them uh built their critical models from without right yes or from nothing yes yes Um, 
That's so what you're bringing to... you're bringing these two things together, and I think in a way they've always been together, and they yes. always belong together. Yes, that's yeah. what I would. Yes, and and I before I started my school, I did a lot of research. I visited Sudbury schools, and there was one Sudbury school called I think it's called the New School, and it's in Delaware. Okay. Um, they were amazing because she and I both went to St. John's College. Uh, we didn't know each other before me deciding to do this type of school. Um, I chose this type of school because my son, who's 12, my oldest, I, I was able to identify at a very young age, three or four, that he was he would not do well in a traditional mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. Um, him being a black male um, and knowing that he would probably go to um, a faith-based school and knowing that yep. most faith-based schools do not celebrate brown boys, mm-hmm. uh, especially one like him who could not stay still. Um, uh-huh. And it was fiercely creative, artsy, could sing, love, just, yeah. he was just very creative. I wanted to start him in a situation that schooling was positive for him, that mm. that he would not be in an oppressive space. Yeah. And so I, I, I um, was really kind of worried about where he, we were finishing up his K-4 year and I didn't know what we were going to do. And I got this flyer um, for, um, I think it's called um, Fairhaven Sudbury School. It's in Maryland to come check out their open house. And I went um, and they didn't, it took them five minutes for me to be convinced that this is what my son needed. And (laughs) um, when they said, it's kind of like how you started this, um, when when you told me about how this podcast would work. I said, well, when are their tests? There are no tests. Well, what is the curriculum? The children are the curriculum. Like, it's just very mm. much, um, yeah. um, they they are learning as they live in community here in this building. And we're, as the teachers and staff, we're kind of supporting that process, providing a protective framework for that process. Right. But they are learning as they become human, more and more grow in their humanness. Right. And I love that. And I felt my son would really thrive in that. And I, and I was right. He's 12 and he's... I'm, I know I'm his mother and I'm, I may be biased, but I would say the experiment worked. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, um, and so I, I visited the Sudbury school in Delaware just before I opened, just to make sure I needed to really just spend time in a space. And I, I chose the one in Delaware because the founder had gone to St. John's college. And okay. so yeah. I, I, even though I love the Sudbury model, I knew I wanted my child to have some classical education in their yeah. life, some yeah. appreciation for the liberal arts. And so I felt her school would show me that. And she said the most beautiful quote. She said, um, what did she say? The Sudbury model, if you think about it and you think about how Socrates taught <laughs> is actually classical yeah. education. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I and I that thing has stuck with me because I have visited a lot of classical schools. My parents had a classical school. And we and we often name Socrates and Aristotle as kind of like uh, those forefathers of classical sure. education. Sure. But classical schools often look like traditional schools. Everyone's right. sitting at their desk. They're wearing a uniform. Right. They may have Socratic dialogue. Yeah. But um, there's oftentimes still a very traditional approach to this. Whereas mm. Socrates, and I went even deeper with it because I had to connect it also to my faith. Um, sure. Socrates was not in a room. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in uniform. Yeah. 
they were just kind of hanging out in the square in different random spaces around town yeah. talking, right? right. Now, as a Christian, I took that and I said, well, Jesus did the same thing. That must have been mm-hmm. how people talk. And what was Jesus taught? He was taught a rabbi. And then I looked, then I went, I went through this whole journey. Then I looked up, because you're a phenomenologist like myself. Uh-huh. I looked at the etymology of school. Yeah. Slowly. And the etymology of school is leisure, leisure in learning. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Free and time. so, you re- you know, so I said, schooling should not be painful. Mm-hmm. It should be something you relax and enjoy and partake of. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want a classical school that was jamming Latin and rhetoric and yeah. logic and memorizing all of the great texts. So now you're a classical student because you can stand up and conjugate all these verbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted that, but I wanted it in a relaxed, loving space. And I felt sure. the Sudbury model provided the framework. And so what the school does is... um. We, it's kind of like a half and half. So half of the week is pretty classical, traditional, like you would see in most classical schools. Mm-hmm. We're learning our Latin conjugations, but Latin sure. derivatives. We're yeah. learning logic. We're learning government. We're learning how to read. Like this week, my students are reading the Federalist Papers. And I'm very strict that whatever classical learning happens, and the teachers understand this, has to happen Monday through Wednesday. Okay. And that... Even in Monday through Wednesday, there are pockets throughout the day of freedom. Mm. And they're scheduled in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that parents, students, teachers can come to me and say, I'm in class from this time to this time, like three hours straight. Oh, we got to take something out. You have, the freedom is a class Mm -hmm. almost. It's like, Mm -hmm. it is that important. Yeah. And then Thursday and Friday... Friday, there's no classes. There's nothing. It's We go to the building. We go on field trips. They can stay home. They can go hiking. But it's a time for them to be, for us to be out of their ear, for them to have complete freedom. Thursday mm. is half day of freedom. It's just a, a project presentation. But the project presentation is on anything they choose based on anything they've learned during the week. And they right. basically almost like teach a class. They put in little small groups and they present PowerPoints on various topics that they've learned throughout the week. So everyone kind of gets an idea of what everyone else is learning and their different learning journeys. So it's it's understanding that the Sudbury model is different than classical education mm-hmm. and that it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, um, I mean, it's, uh, as I said before, I think there's a lot of good reasons to see them in harmony with one another. And yet here we are uh, yes. in a time where... Uh, I think for ideological reasons, um, progressive education or democratic education or uh, these particular types of um, beliefs about the purpose of education, which are all humanistic, yes, um, are often divided from, if not set apart or even set against the purposes of classical education, which I believe need to be humanistic otherwise and a lot of them even would claim to be without as we talked about early on uh being willing to really follow through when it comes to questions of justice and questions of equality Equality. Um, i was about to say that yes yeah i'm really tempted by your point about socrates just i just finished teaching uh this term a uh 
I don't even know if I want to call it teaching. On Fridays, I hosted a, a reading group of teenagers um, where we read Plato's Euthyphro. Um, and, uh, and we read it in a really kind of, I would say, uh, and, and in some ways we read it the way I like to read the parables in scripture, which uh-huh. is, you know, let's focus on the story, the characters, the, the plot, like, uh-huh. like literature, you know, yes. um, so that we can really get inside the text and then work the text kind of from the inside out yes. instead of, you know, breaking it into arguments or what have you. Yes. And one of the immediate things that became really clear to me, um, I, I don't think it was as exciting to them. But, you know, when we talk about Socratic teaching, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, for them, it was like, what is this even about? Yes. Um, and, and getting into the text that way was good to, for that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that became really, like, clear as day is that when we talk about Socratic teaching, we think about that whole Alentius model where the teacher is kind of throwing questions at students and they got to, you know, and they got to, they're confronted and all that. Yes. But yes. in Socrates, in Plato's yes. dialogues, the very first speaker is almost never Socrates. You know, in the Mino, it's tell me Socrates, can virtue be taught or is it yes. learned in some other way? And the Euthyphro, Euthyphro says, hey, what are you doing at the court of Agathon? Yes. You're not here because you're in trouble, are you? Or in the in Plato's Republic, yes. you know, he's trying to just walk up from the, this port city, you know, outside of Athens and get back. And they're like, hey, do you want to go to a party? He's like, yeah. no, I don't want to go to a party. Yes. Um, oh, in other words, like, it's not home. even that Socrates is going around acting out in this avant-garde you know way but it's in fact that people are coming to him in a way it's very similar to christ who just jesus just wants to go off and pray yeah you know and be by himself (laughs) and get away and people keep coming up to him asking him questions trying to trap him you know all these kinds of things I wonder if we could pause on this particular point. Like what exactly is, in other words, the point is that the teacher's authority, Christ's own divine authority, Socrates's authoritative, canonical, irreplaceable, you know, that is not the the point of initiation for these traditions. Whenever we look at the texts closely, classically, rigorously, we find that it always comes from the part of the one to be educated, yes. from the part of the student. They're, they are the initiators of this Socratic teaching, yes. right? Yes. Um, yes. I, I wonder. I wonder some thoughts on, on, on that just little tiny detail I've noticed. So, Sam, I think you and I are the only people in the world who see this. Because <laughs> literally, I this is what I feel, and people look at me like I have two heads. It's just right there in the book. It's right there. And so, like, at Howard, it's so funny because this is how I teach at Howard. I don't, they, we are, I always say we're on a journey together. Mm. So there's not, there's no lecture notes, you know. Mm. If I feel like you may need a little background information to understand a character just because, uh, in my mind, like, I mean, just look up the name online and look it up yourself. But I will, Mm -hmm. you know, I will share some background, a video or something just, but very little interference in their thought processes. And it's very interesting how they will come so nervous. They'll mm. say, they'll even complain. Like, I'm not used to this. I mean, what do you want us to know? I'm like, mm-hmm. what do you want to know? Yeah. And 
and I that's what the semester usually starts off. I think I've been there for three years. So I think there's a reputation on the campus. Now the students come expecting this new learning experience, right? Sure, but they're still nervous. Sure. Yeah. And so I open up office hours in the evening because they want to make sure their thoughts for the essay are correct. Yeah. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know what correct means. I mean, what do you yeah. feel about? I mean, is this what you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. what are you gleaning from this text or this combination of text? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, so I can just say what I feel what I think. I said, absolutely. I said, I might be wrong. So yeah. like I want to learn from you. Yeah, yeah. And when I read their essays, I'll sometimes put notes. Oh my gosh, you just made me see something I didn't even realize. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. And there's an exchange of information and the questions are coming from you so the, the class begins with give me some questions a lot of times when we teach classically or socratically we think we have to frame the questions and the right. discussion happens within this frame that we've set up it's a cross-examination yes but yeah. i'm very um i'm so glad you've said this because i was feeling very lonely and i'm like well am i missing something but <laughs> but i keep going back to the data which is the experiences i'm having I look at my students, I look at my children, I look at the students at Howard. And at the end of the journey with me, they've always grown by leaps and bounds, mm. academically, intellectually, mm -hmm. internally, emotionally, mentally, socially. Yeah. So much happens in that freedom. This is why I was drawn again to the Sudbury models because this notion of freedom, a lot of yeah. times, um, I think one of the issues in America and something that people don't understand, and I hope I can say this correctly without making people mad, is we are so caught up on we were given freedom. Hmm. But just saying that completely cancels true freedom. Because when freedom is given to me and the person giving it to me creates the framework for where I experience freedom. Right. I am not truly free. No. And so, and I don't think people fully understand that. I'm free with condition. I'm free within a certain, a certain context. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that as a chocolate woman who's been here for 50 years. Right. That I am thankful for my country. I would not want to live anyplace mm -hmm. else. But there is still this limited freedom that I have because Absolutely. my freedom is conditional. Yeah. under a certain context in this yeah. country. So my school and in my classes at Howard, wherever I'm teaching, because those are the spaces I can control and those mm. are the spaces that America has given me the freedom to create schools and to teach in this way, mm -hmm. I try to remove that sense of here is, I'm allowing you to have this freedom under my terms. Right, right. I, no, I want you, if you're learning from me, Yeah. I want you to be completely free. Even if, so when I, and finally, when I, when I share, when I make the syllabus, mm -hmm. I don't have the syllabus with, and we're going to be discussing these points of it. I'm like, read this and be prepared to come talk about it in class. Mm -hmm. They come mm -hmm. to class um, and they have like this form or the spreadsheet, put in your questions. I'll wait while you write in your questions. You and I just go down the list of questions. Okay. So-and-so wants to ask such and such mm -hmm. and such and such. And then we spend a whole long, and that takes us down a whole bunch of rabbit trails. And when we feel like we've exhausted that question. Okay. So-and-so wants to ask, and that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. That's how I teach. And I, and kids learn. Oh yeah. That way. No, absolutely. I, um, your point on freedom, I think is, is, is powerful. And in some ways it also brings us to, and this is going to seem like a detour, but I promise <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it around. Um, jazz. So 
there's there's a there's a lot of different it's a contested term and it's a contested tradition and and you know at, at some level that is part of what makes it great right um there's a particular tradition though that i believe it really in, is insistent on kind of like two two operating premises for what we mean or, or what we're talking about when we're talking about jazz and i'm i have to admit i'm a partisan of both of these claims mm-hmm. um one is that jazz is uh african-american music it's black music and second of all that it is america's classical music Mm. and um one of the reasons for the kind of heavily culturally determined first claim being the idea of jazz as black music isn't meant to restrict people from engaging participating or creating it based on their identity right but i believe that it is uh not only a historical marker, but also a uh, a defense line against turning jazz into what we could call world music, or kind of just like you know emptying it out of its history, of its temporality, of its you know reality in a way. Yes. On the other hand, though, and and I think this is at some least what we're talking about. There's almost more controversy as the idea of jazz is as American classical music or, and, or when you put them together, black classical music, um, because some on the one hand want to say, well, no, it's against classical music. It's supposed to, even though miles went to Juilliard and could read music. Duke and, Ellington you know, was classically I mean, trained Yeah, exactly. Music. Yeah, right. exactly. Yes, yes. Um, on the other hand, there is, uh, there are of course those gatekeepers of classical music who, don't feel that jazz uh, qualifies for whatever reasons. And I think that there's been some pretty, um, I think we're at a place in, in, in the, uh, in the world and in, in the times where the gatekeepers have gatekeepers. been kind of dismantled by yes. their own tradition to show that jazz music is not unsophisticated at right. all. Right. Uh, and then of course I would always say like, well, just grab a guitar, sit on the keys and just, you know, if it's, if it's that easy, just, you know, you know, play a Charlie Parker on real fast, you know, (laughs) the reason I bring up jazz is because, um, I think it has a, a direct connection and link to two classical intellectual traditions. Uh, we've been thus far talking about, um, the canon, so to speak. I think the question, though, of like what gets included or excluded in the canon is a question and how certain texts are accounted for as either anti-canonical canonical, or as value added to a canon uh, that have been previously not in the canon. Right. And to to me, um, one of the great gifts to and I know this will be controversial to say it this way to the what we today would think of as the Western classical tradition is the African-American intellectual and artistic tradition. Yes. yes. And here I'm, I'm thinking of Du Bois and I'm yes. thinking of Woodson and I'm thinking yes. of, you know, so many um, voices who wrote on a number of subjects, but among them, the question of education, yeah. right. Um, and a disputed question of education. Yeah. Um, I'm setting all this up because uh, your point on freedom uh, really struck me. 
because I'm familiar enough with the uh, the ways in which, especially like Frederick Douglass, would repeat the arguments of the time on the question of freedom. Mm-hmm. And one of the remarkable things that um, one of the rhetorical arguments that was drawn up during both times when emancipation or when any of the reconstruction amendments were up or, you know, even during civil rights and whatnot, um, was that, no, don't you realize enslaved people are totally free on my plantation because I am a good (laughs) Christian, upright, virtuous master. Um, I give them so much time to themselves and they have built a community a culture all of their own and as you can see here obviously you know um these conditions of so-called freedom in fact afterwards the uh many people in the south paternalistically and in bad faith but would say things like when we look at the squalor in which the freedman has to live now after emancipation our hearts are hurting for them because during enslavement they ate so well they lived so well we treated them far better than the state has treated them now by abandoning them i mean this was a really perverse uh twisted yet at the same time borrowing on these tiny points of realism you know in in that experience and i think that your point about um true freedom is essentially saying that whenever one's freedom is contingent upon being given to anyone who is not the ultimate giver of freedom, yes. Yes. almighty God, yes. then uh, we cannot describe ourselves in any naive sense as being, you know, free. Totally, truly free. And, and okay, so, oh my gosh, you've, you've touched on so many things. I should have written down everything. So I ah. <laughs> let, let me deal with, the, the, what you said about the slaves, so we can, that's a great analogy. Because, um, and there are so many stories like that, where once an enslaved person was set free, how they were um, very poor, very destitute. Yeah. We've struggle. been reading in Exodus, right? Because Israel turns yes. on Moses and says, yes. hey, what yes. happened? Yes. The meat, the meat pots of Egypt, yes. you know? Yes. <laughs> and, but um, there are two stories I want to share just to kind of illustrate great. how how priceless true freedom is. Mm. Um, Phyllis Wheatley died in squalor. Um, she was poor her entire life, even after freedom, you know, the the Wheatleys freed her and she became a published author and she never once communicates a desire to go back, even with nice slave masters, Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. as, even while she was with them and they were treating her like a daughter, she wanted to be free. Yeah. All right. So that's one story. And, but one very specific story that I really want to encourage people to read is called um, Never Caught. It's the story of Ona Judd. And she was the only, I think, the only runaway slave of George Washington. Okay. And she, he, she escaped from him. He had taken her from Virginia to Philadelphia, I was. Right. And she used that opportunity to escape. Yeah. And she never went back. But he was always, he spent most of his life trying to get her to come back. Wow. She lived in squalor her whole life. Did she, you yeah. know, husband died. She got married. Husband died. Um, and she talks about, and these are her words, no matter how poor I am, I am mm-hmm. so thankful I wake up a free woman. Mm-hmm. 
Now, if I take those stories and connect it to, I'm, you know, my ancestors were enslaved on different plantations in America, in the South, and um, I am now a, a child. I'm a child of a father who survived the civil rights times of civil rights and saw the civil rights bill passed. And um, I am considered free. And there are going to be white people who say, you know, I've heard white people say, we have done so much. It seems like mm. it's never enough. You'll hear people say that mm-hmm. you're ungrateful. I've heard people say that mm-hmm. to me. You're so ungrateful to, to say that I'm free, but not all the way sounds mm-hmm. ungrateful. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I have experienced, and I've said this over and over, I have experienced as a grown woman driving through a neighborhood and the police officer saying, you should not be in this neighborhood, even though it was mm-hmm. a neighborhood across the street from mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he gave me a ticket yeah. for no reason um, that I contested and won. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was like, you, no, I'm allowed to drive wherever I want to drive. And you're not going to make up some lie that I did something mm-hmm. that I didn't, that I didn't stop at a stop sign or, or what have you, which I did. Right. Um, and someone may hear that and say, well, she probably didn't. She just didn't realize. No, I did. Mm-hmm. And and because when they ask you questions, like, well, where are you, where are you going? Like, where, where are you headed? Yeah, like, yeah, those yeah. types, you know. And so that's just one blip in my, the story of my life of a sign that I have a limited freedom, you know? Yeah. And so to this day, I don't go into certain neighborhoods at certain times of night. Right. I am home you know, or driving through places where there's more people like that look like me because of that experience. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not freedom. There, right. It's not freedom when you feel like to be successful, especially in places like academia, yeah. I have to be on my piece. You know, I have to have, I mean, I have been passed over for positions in academia mm-hmm. with two masters working on a PhD and the person that got the job had just finished her BA. Yeah. And the position was to oversee student teachers. Right. She had never taught and had just had a BA, was just starting her master's. I, at the time, had been teaching for almost 15 years, had two masters, and was working on my PhD. And she was chosen to be the overseer of student teachers at a major Mm -hmm. university. We applied for the same position. Mm -hmm. And so that's not freedom. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, what else do I have to do to be considered equal enough to be considered and that's not the only story of positions i've applied for where i was not even considered in spite of my resume i and the person who got the position did not have a similar resume as myself and so and and i'm not saying i should have gotten the job but i should at least been interviewed and so my point is this that these personal stories and i this, this, I don't want to make this time together about all of my personal stories. These, but these stories are one of many in my life. Why I'm so stubborn about this? Why those who want to say you just got to forgive the past? No, mm-hmm. I. It's this, these are things. This limited freedom I'm experiencing in this country happens right. to me every day, all day, every day, right. and throughout every week. It happens all the time. I have learned. I've been given the tools to navigate that, but that's right. not freedom. Yeah. There's no, that's not freedom. Uh, and so, to, 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 and so, and another thing that, um, a, a quote that people will often say, and sometimes black, blacks will say this too, you know, um, you just have to work hard. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but we should all have Washington to, school. We should all have to work equally as hard for the same things. I should not right. have to work harder. There, there is nothing noble about me working harder than another yeah. person for the same position, and I have more... Uh, qualifications or more experience or, or, you know, that 
that working hard and, and black people have bought into this that if we just work hard we're gonna be mm-hmm. successful that's that's a slave mentality if i just work hard maybe the master won't beat me today yeah. if i just work really hard maybe he'll let me stay in the big house mm-hmm. if i just work really hard maybe he won't sell my child like that i'm talking about plantation but that same mentality of if i just work hard maybe society will accept me or give me some opportunities or i just work really really hard and so um that's not freedom yeah but that's my framework so the free someone has given me freedom mm-hmm. within a context right and we as black people have even gotten into the habit of thinking working extra hard till we have high blood pressure and about to lose our minds mm-hmm. is a noble thing is a good thing and it's not yeah and it's not really even anything we should be proud of we do it because we have to right but this country needs to get away from that framework where mm-hmm. everyone has equal opportunity in the same way, not because of the, and I'm thankful for affirmative action, but it's sad that we need it in 2022. Right. right. Yeah. So I know that was a lot. And so all of these things are why um, black people, when they were set free, were like, I don't care how poor I am. I can go walk outside if I want to. Right. I can be any place I want to. I can live anywhere in the world that I want to. I don't right. have to show someone my hall pass. If they're wondering why I'm off the plantation, mm-hmm. that sense of humanness, they own themselves, as John Locke said, they own, they govern their bodies. Yeah. They own their bodies. Like, nothing can 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 take the place of that. So, and I feel that because even as, and this is what we learned from the activists who've come before us, even as America gives this conditional freedom to those who used to be enslaved, it is a beautiful thing that we live in a country where I can have this conversation with you mm-hmm. and not be afraid for my life. That's right. No, that's true. So that's progress. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that I can go on the hill. If I feel like something unjust happens to me someplace, mm-hmm. I can go take someone to court all the way up to the highest court right. to have my voice heard. It may be a, a fight, but sure. I can do that. That's progress. So I'm grateful yeah. for that. You know. Yeah. No, no, there's, there's, um, that's really powerful. It reminds me of, uh, Two things, really. But the main thing is uh, a theme that Martin Luther King brought up after the Civil Rights Act was passed. Um, and it was really the theme that that we that I, I observe him talking a lot about in his speeches in 67 and 68, mm-hmm. um, which is that um, civil rights was about equality before the law, mm-hmm. equality before the law, just the ability to function within the most basic civic um, rules for society as, as equals, right? And his, his point was that equality before the law is an extremely limited and small um, uh, notion. It's not a moral equality. It's, it's legal it. equality. Yes. Um, and so he, he, des- he described the struggle to come, he would talk about, the struggle to come. Yes as the struggle to move from legal equality, equality before the law, into true equality, which was moral equality. Yes. And I think that um, this is something I've I've actually really noticed, is that, you know, he was killed in 68. Hmm. And for many 
people, uh, in particular, the African-American community, and I think people of, of color, I certainly, I think my community as well, mm. um, they experienced the death of King as the death of the dream of King and as a signal that this struggle for true equality was um, unkept and in a way that the, the bad check, right, uh, that King wanted uh, to, to get cash was only provided on, on a very strict set of terms, which of course brings that same question of freedom of that, like, well, this isn't really freedom, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. The reason I'm saying this this way is that like, one thing I've come to sort of suddenly realize is, oh my gosh, even, I mean, I'm here in Canada, so it could be also a problem of Canadians not knowing uh, or understanding American history or American yeah. context. But a lot of majority folks believe that the story of the civil rights movement is a triumphant story of victory when the text again the texts don't tell us a story of triumphant victory it's like black reconstruction in america both du bois's book but also just the historical period right yes of course the three reconstruction amendments are in some legal sense victories yeah but look at what happened yeah. afterwards. Jim Crow was the yes. moral, you could say, response, yes. Yes. both in law and in society. Yep. Um, and I think that the uh, mm. that aftermath, some call that the white lash that comes after um, these kinds of things definitely dampen um, the triumphalism, if not make and, and here, there's a variety of opinion. I, I'm not a member of the pessimist club on any side. Right, right, I'm, right. I'm not an, I don't, I'm, I'm, I kind of reject Afro-pessimism out yes, of hand and a lot me of too. things like me that. Me too, me too. Um, but I can understand yes. why pessimism is in some way with its own problems, yes. which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah. But in a way, it's a, it's more true to the, pathos of these kinds of legacies that are otherwise in i think a lot of you know common experience taught and 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 assumed to be moments of great victory it's like people talk about jfk like he didn't get shot or lincoln like he didn't get shot or right. martin luther king like he didn't get <laughs> shot or you know it's like <laughs> anyway I'm laughing because that is so true. That is so true. I think I think the civil rights movement was a first step. And that even black people have failed to understand its processes. Mm -hmm. And so it has been difficult to continue the work. It was a very right. the civil rights movement led by Martha King was on its way to being very successful. Yeah. Um, but his dream was stalled a bit or the process slowed with his murder. Yeah. And even though his family has done a phenomenal job of keeping his name alive, his dream alive, 
there hasn't been someone to pick up the mantle to continue that work in the way that he did in the, in the path he was taking. He was, people don't understand. He was actually taking a political path. Yes. He was actually very similar to uh, Mandela Hmm. who, but see Mandela lived long enough to finally be president. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to really uh, move it towards progress. Mm. It's not so South Africa by no means is completely healed. Sure. But they definitely turned some corners. America hasn't turned yet. That's right. Yeah. And, and so King died Mm -hmm. and you, you hear about the infighting afterwards. You hear about, I think it was Abernathy. Like he was very mm-hmm. divisive with mm-hmm. Coretta Scott King. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it wasn't someone who just was like, King, you're gone. I'm taking this mantle. I'm going to continue this all the way up. There was some, John Lewis was trying, like everyone was yeah, trying, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. there just wasn't that there, you know, there wasn't another King on that level yeah, with yeah. that, with that intellect and political and historical understanding right. of humanity to continue the work. And so sometimes yeah. you get even black people saying, you know, it's time to stop doing things like Martin Luther King. And when someone says that to me, I said, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah. What, what, and I'll ask the question, what did Martin Luther King do? What did he accomplish? No yeah. one can ever answer that for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was, you know, he wanted people just to get along and be peaceful and he wanted whites and blacks just to get along. That, that's a thought he had. Mm-hmm. What did he accomplish tangibly, politically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, when it comes to policy, mm-hmm. what did he accomplish? They don't know. Yeah. They don't know his political strategy, and they don't know the bills and laws that were passed as a direct result of his political work. They don't know that. And so yeah. we've had movements that have come up that have created a lot of... Um, uh, they have definitely continued to shine the light that work still needs to be done. Yeah. But pushing us past this point of marching. Right. Pushing us past this point of, I can't stand it. This is still where we are. Mm-hmm. To what changes are going to happen tangibly in right. our policies? Right. You know, a, a perfect example is, and I'll say this, and I hope no one's offended, is there's this picture after George Floyd, George Floyd was murdered and mm. you see the Democrats and, uh, and I, and I actually, you know, have respect for all political leaders. This is not a slight against any political leader, but you'll see mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi and all the Democrats kneeling with the yeah, kids yeah, off and yeah. their path. They, they've with gone the through African stoles, the stoles kinda, and yeah, you've got yeah. this George Floyd bill. Yeah. 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 They're still just sitting there. That's true. Although they just passed the Emmett Till bill yeah. last spring. I mean, oh it's horrible to say that. I mean, but, but I mean, it's like, so we will see the George Floyd bill pass in 50 years, right? I mean, oh my gosh. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's just, this country is maddening. Sometimes. I love it with every fiber of my being, mm-hmm. but I feel like the, the logic sometimes really escapes me. What, what are we using to think this thing through? And so the George Floyd boy, you know, that's such a great point. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just sitting there. And it's really something we should all want. And I, and I was sitting down talking with some white people about this. And I and they were saying, well, you know, I've gone through some things with police that weren't right. I said, right. so why don't you want this bill passed? Mm-hmm. I said, you've got to not see this bill as a black thing. It's not a black cause. Yeah, I yeah. said, I have a whole catalog of blacks, whites, autistic, deaf, women, children, mm-hmm. old, young, who have been abused, battered, and killed by police. Right. Whereas you have statistics in other countries that it's not like that. 
Right. Well, this is really a bipartisan issue and yeah. not to go on and on, but you know, so I think we're so stuck uh, mm. in this framework of us against them that yeah. we're not realizing, and this is something Abraham Lincoln understood again before he was murdered, that <laughs> the ending of slavery was not just a black issue. This was killing the country financially, right. morally, internally, yeah. emotionally, mentally. It, on so many levels, slavery was destroying America. Yeah. Not just because it was destroying my ancestors, mm -hmm. but on a broader scale. And Abraham Lincoln understood that. So right. it's really important that as we are continuing to work towards progress, that we look at things from a more holistic way. Mm. And freedom, going back to our conversation on freedom. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you're truly free, you're able to think that way. A lot of yes. times we are held captive by our tribes and what they think we right. should be fighting for. Right. right. And we won't allow ourselves the freedom mm. to have a more global understanding of this journey mm -hmm. because we're so stuck in these frameworks. Yeah. That is, I, I, want, I want to quickly touch on, on three points you brought up just, just through kind of three illusions uh, for mainly for, for the, for, for our audience. Um, the first is, uh, the point you brought up about, you know, slavery killing the nation, uh, uh, Lincoln being aware of this and the idea that black liberation is not about, it's not an identitarian liberation yes. project. It's yes. a humanist liberation yes. project. It's always been expressed that way. You yes. can read Fanon, you can read King, yes. you can read anyone you want. And, yes. you know, um, there is, uh, of course, the theory of, uh, uh, Derek Bell interest convergence where he theorized that Brown yes. v. Board of Education in particular, yes. which he yes. was an, on the end of AACP legal yes. team for that. Yes. He got the front seat to see yes. Senator Marshall do his thing. Yes. He, he, he said, you know, this wasn't actually, um, and it, it's, it's actually wildly unpopular to say this, but, but Bell said this. He said it wasn't actually that the streets and the activists pushed this through. In many ways, they hindered it. Yeah. And I think Marshall was really aware of the ways he had no patience for, frankly, King or X in his time because he was such a, a man of policy and of yes, practice, you yes, know, and stuff. Yes. Um, Bell's point, though, was that there has to be an interest convergence. There has to be a point at where people feel as if their own interests are represented yes. and converge yes. with the interests of others. Yes. And this may not be the perfect emancipation uh, uh, uh liberationist uh model for social change but the it's the only realistic one within the american legal tradition yeah. that we yeah. have yeah and i think that in some ways that's what lincoln was able to see he yes. probably frankly i mean and we know this from some of douglas's critiques of lincoln he was probably more invested in saving america than he was in saving the freedmen Right. Yes. <laughs> but yes. that's enough. That was that was enough though. Yes. Um yes. to 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 set the next stage which would be of course the stage of black reconstruction yes. and so on yes. and so forth. Yes. So yes. that's the first point. The second one is yes. I read this interview in the Paris Review. Oh, I remember what you just said cuz I want to say something to you. Let me write that down. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> the second point is I I read this interview with Ishmael Reed in in Paris Review a couple years ago now. And um I've always loved Reed for a number of reasons. One of them was the off-Broadway play that uh, Toni Morrison actually helped fund 
uh, where he kind of dragged uh, Miranda a bit. <laughs> but um, Reed um, has always been an inspiring artist to me. And he was talking about growing up in Chicago. And he made this really powerful point that, that really coincides with some of your remarks about King. He said, you know, growing up, we literally thought that the NOI, that the Nation of Islam, Malcolm the Max, that they were going to raise up an army and they were going to go into the into the South and they were going to free us and they were going to go down and, and essentially we were going to have a second civil war where we were going to do what the Haitians had done and what all the liberation, you know, armed movements and militias had done. And so it, to us, that's why, you know, X was, was the real radical because he was recruiting an army. Yeah. Um, Reed then says, little did I know mm. that the true radical was King. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because he not, was going after the nation. He was, and see people, this is what friend, people don't even understand his, I have a dream speech. There's some things mm -hmm. he says in there. Yeah. That are so, he was not just about, because even when he was killed, he was doing something for the union, for Memphis. union workers. Yeah, yeah, for um, uh, sanitation workers. Yeah, yeah. so he, like, yeah. He, he was going after, he was going after America truly being a free country for every yeah. person. That's right. And the hearts of people changing. So his speeches were emotional because through his speeches, people's hearts changed. That's right. He was trying to change the mind. And see, going back to what you said about Lincoln, People get offended when he says, if I could save America without freeing the slaves, I would. Right. That offend, that statement does offend me, so don't get confused. I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I find it pretty I love what you're myself. saying because at the end of the day, though, he recognized that the country can't be saved if everyone isn't free. That's right. And so he became very, he distant, he became very different from that statement he made in the early part of his political career. Yeah. By the end, he was saying that the blood of these people is on our hands. Yeah. And he says that statement just a few weeks before, a month or so, or two months before he is murdered. Yeah. And so he, he and, and that's, that actually, like Lincoln, like Martin Luther King, even like Thurgood Marshall, that is, that is really the mentality that will save mm. the nation. Mm. is that we have to we have to love our country mm. and we have to love our country enough that we fight for everyone's equal freedom mm. even if it's someone who doesn't look like you so perfect example as an educator um i i look for curriculum like this is one of the issues that i do have with people i'll say who are misusing crt sure 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 um, or, and who are even misrepresenting how to be an anti-racist. Sure, sure, sure. They will take these things, and this is why we have an uproar, and they think, let's make the curriculum all black, all about how black people have been mistreated, and that is the history. And you got mm. Asian people who live here, Native people mm -hmm. still trying to find their way in their own land. Lord, don't get me started. You, and you know, you got, you got, all types of people groups, Hispanics, you got, you got Muslims, you got Christians, you got atheists, you got, you got all, you got the gay community. You got all mm -hmm. types of people who are trying to find true freedom in this country. Mm -hmm. And the way we address it is to make curricula only about the black experience. Yeah. 
I mean, on this, I might have a, my experience is actually different on this one. Okay. Um, it's, people think it's a joke, but it's, it's actually serious. I wasn't able to find a suitable narrative of my experience as a Mexican American on the border, all these things until I read Du Bois. See? Mm. For Du Bois, the color line yes. was the dash in my American, Mexican American. That yes. dash became the color line for me. Yes. And, 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 and I have to say there wasn't, uh, and to this day, I don't know of any equivalent or substitutionary, um, equivalents for the gift that, that Du Bois gave to me. Same, I would say with like jazz yet, I, I, I do think that an Afrocentric curriculum or model, um, can offer to all, even from it providing a very conscious or a very, today people would use the word woke and I know we're not allowed to use yeah. that word anymore, but um, I'm still saying, I already told people, I'm still saying it. Yeah. I'm still saying it since the 70s. You're not going to take that word from me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a kind of a, a, an awakened, I mean, this goes back to Plato, book seven, you know, the allegory of the cave. Um, an, an awakened curriculum. And so for, for me, I, I'm not, I don't feel personally threatened by uh, uh, an Afrocentric or, 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 or a, a particularly um, black um, counter narrative. However, I do agree with you that the places where when that narrative is used for not Afrocentrism, but for Afro-nationalism. Yes. Or for, Afro you know, Afro-pessimism, yes. Afro pessimism, which That's is a form of that. that. I read it. Uh, a certain yes. kind of pan-African, yes. you know, ideals. You know, and, and this is actually something I struggle with. I don't like the pan move anywhere, whether it's pan-indigenous or pan-Hispanic or whatever. Yes. But I do have to admit that, like, Du Bois did find his resting place back in Ghana. Like he he gave up. He gave up. He gave up. He died not too long and, after he moved there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and so to your point, I think that's where I was going is that, okay. especially with children, you mm. know, we're raising up the next generation and you have to, with children, create. I, now, I don't have an issue with it past high school. Okay. But when you're dealing with K 12. I see. You have to be, because children are so, they see things in black and white, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to be careful about how those minds are shaped. And so my mm. thinking, and I know that mm. this is controversial, especially in my community, is that uh, I definitely have a real problem with Eurocentric curricula. It makes Absolutely. me very frustrated. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also have a problem with Afrocentric curricula for children mm. only. Mm -hmm. Let me let me be careful. Mm -hmm. I use Afrocentric curricula in my school. Okay. My own children attend a wonderful online homeschooling uh, resource called Sankofa Homeschool Community, and they offer all types of Afrocentric classes for my kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am a definite a supporter of that, yeah. but not only. Right. Right. Not that's the point. That's the point. When yes, because then we're doing the same thing white people did to us. Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to create citizens that really have a global understanding, like black people will talk so much about their experience, and we don't even have give with with our experience, there should be an a urgency to learn the native experience. Mm-hmm. 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 
and we don't. Right. And they're right. here. I'm, I, even as I go along, my, I live in an area where you see certain streets and rivers and things that are named after Native American tribes. Yeah. And I'm thinking, where are they? Like, I know mm-hmm. where they are, but like, why <laughs> aren't they prominent? Why aren't they respected? Why aren't they in the history books more? Mm-hmm. Why are they relegated to just a little chapter here and a little chapter there? And this yeah. is their land and this is their story. And they mm-hmm. actually contributed after, right. af- after a while, like the Iroquois Nation, coming to the 1776 Continental Congress, invited by Benjamin Franklin to yeah. have some type of consultation on this new country and this document that would make it so all people get along, mm-hmm. diverse people can get along because the, 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 the great law of peace had helped those tribes in the Iroquois nation have peace after many years of mm-hmm. struggle. And so we found inspiration in that. Like, why isn't that in the history books? Why isn't mm-hmm. that told worldwide that we understand how much, you know, why don't we spend more time talking about how the Native people, in spite of us infiltrating their land, mm-hmm. there were those Natives who really helped these early settlers thrive against, even, even in the fear of, these people are going to take over my land. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much we don't talk about. Right. And I'm bothered by that. I'm bothered yeah. by um, why don't we talk about the Japanese in the minute camps? Like, why don't we talk about what it was like to be Japanese during that world war and what they mm-hmm. went through and how people would look at them with a side eye just because of they were from Japan. Right. You know, I, I could go on and on of examples of how there is just a lack of empathy yeah. for all of the different people groups mm. that have found themselves on this land. Yeah. And and we act like to tell those stories somehow takes away from the beauty of this country. Mm. But it would do nothing would make us love it more. Absolutely. And so that's where I'm going with and I, and I I know that people feel like I am not and maybe people may feel like I am not talking more about my people. But I think what Martha King was feeling was that how could I just be so it is in me fighting for my people that I am developing a love and an empathy for those who also others who struggle, who That's don't right. look like me, whether you're poor, yeah. whether you're yeah. a woman. And see, Martin yeah. King didn't fight for women like he should, but don't, no, that's the story. No. You know, yeah, and so, three, three evils, not one of them had to do with women. It was, yes. it was uh, racism, poverty, and war. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, like he talked, uh, Coretta Scott King talks about not being allowed to sit with him. Mm-hmm. During the I Have a Dream speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't fight for her to sit with him. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. She just had to bear that this is the burden. This is what I have to do to support my husband. Mm-hmm. You know, and so for me, I I read Du Bois and I read King and I read, I, I think about my own life experience and I am developing, a, I want to see all people mm-hmm. to feel free. Yeah. True freedom. And I feel like, all of us should come to that place where we're not fighting for our own individual freedom in competition with someone else's. Right. 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 No, I think that's, I, I, uh, in in a way, actually, when you came around to your point, I was like, wait, I actually agree only because I'm often, I'm often told even in classes I teach now, you know, why is this, you know, Mexican American guy constantly teaching the black intellectual tradition. Why didn't he teach his own tradition? Like, you know, get your own books and stuff. And I'm all, and I always say, no, 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 no. I, I, I teach, wow. I, I, I teach, I teach freedom. I don't teach yeah. I, my identity and all, and I'll, I'll 
I'll I'll take from wherever I find one That's one of my mean. rejoinders I to the freedom. Ooh, I love yeah that. to the people people you know who love to say all kinds of stuff about you know the Greeks. Um, again, same thing as as Du Bois. I, yes. I found in Du Bois a narration of mm -hmm. my own existence. Yeah with within a certain context because yeah. i've also lived in mexico and been yes. not mexican um i often say yeah. in canada it's the first place where i'm kind of an unironic american <laughs> in the u.s i can't quite be just an american and in mexico i can't quite be a mexican and so you know um a lot of chicano activists you know kind of came up with that word actually as an alternative to the mm. other um and i have issues wow. with, with that but the point i mm. wanted to make was that like when i read homer in particular, whenever I read the Odyssey, I think more than the Iliad. And I remember talk, I, I had such a great conversation at the University of Wisconsin with um, Carl Grant, um, a very, very kind of uh, uh, one of those kind of figures in multicultural education mm -hmm. who really led the way. And I think people would be surprised that Grant was really excited to talk to me about Homer. Mm. Um, and, and, and he talked about, well, it's just a book about having adventures. And I was like, yeah, I get that. But for me, it's a book about primarily being lost Ooh. and about this like deep desire, you know, to, to find your way home. And yes, for Lord. me, I was far away from home when I read Homer. Yes. I had not encountered Du Bois, so I was fairly lost in a number of ways. Hmm. And so as far as I was concerned, this was the most... Mexican book I had ever <laughs> read in my life. Yes. Odysseus was absolutely, yes. you know, he had to have been, you know, uh, a Mexican American boy from South Texas, just like. Yes, me. I mean that's you know? how I read Antigone. I read Antigone like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I I I connect with Antigone because of me always having to stand up and fight for what I believe is a black woman. From the time mm -hmm. I was a little girl at four years old, mm. I have memories being in a preschool feeling invisible. Yeah. And feeling like my teachers hated my black skin. Wow. And at that young age, having to make a decision of I am going to be me in this space that doesn't love my face. Mm. And Antigone... God was that for me to me Antigone is a black woman like I thought when I when I hear when I read the play I hear a black woman's voice when yeah. she's getting smart with uh what is Creon is it Creon I think uh yeah, um yeah. when she's getting she has like these one-liners that she's getting really sarcastic with him and smart with him I'm like, yeah. she's gotta be black this is an <laughs> you know like so she, yeah and and so and I and I identify with what you're saying because I latched on to her because um, I, even though I didn't find her till college, she mm -hmm. made my life experiences make sense to me. Yeah. And yeah. I found so much, instead of feeling hurt about the past hurts of racism in my life, mm. Antigone healed me mm. because <clears throat> I talk about my preschool experience, but then in third grade, uh, I made the decision to be unapologetically black all the time, especially in white spaces. I was in third mm. grade. I'll have to show you, I'll send you the picture. Wow. Wow. And I had my mother stop straightening my hair, third grade. 
And I wore an Afro from third grade until I graduated from college. Every once in a while I would get braids, but most of the time from that time, from third grade until I graduated from college, I went from that to dreads. Yeah. And and people think that people would say, why did you cut your daughter's hair? My mom like, well, she asked me to get it cut. I mean, she wanted to cut it off. And people don't understand. I went through a whole thought process because I was in a world, I was a product, I was in a black, I was a black girl in a predominantly white Christian school Mm -hmm. that was constantly being taught you are inferior. You're mm-hmm. not beautiful. You're this. Mm-hmm. You're that. You sh- you're not. God cursed your people. Mm-hmm. And I could and I would look around me and see this white world of white little girls feeling like I'm happy here. Mm-hmm. I am. I'm wanted here. I am. I am respected here. And mm-hmm. what I did at third grade was I made the decision that I will never do anything to make me look like those who are treating me that way. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. I was going to embrace this shell God placed me in for this time, for this Mm. lifetime as a third grader. And so I would, when we could, when we could dress down in in school, I would wear an African dress to school. Sure. You know, I, I wore my big hoop earring. Like it was for me saying, I know you don't think I'm beautiful and my parents are making me go to this school. Mm -hmm. So while I'm here, Mm-hmm. Deal with this blackness because I'm here and I love it no matter what you tell me. Mm-hmm. And I made that decision in third grade. So now I'm having these like philosophical conversations with myself as a child from four years old yeah. Yeah. all the way up till 18. Ugh. And I'm wrestling with my, my self-esteem because at the same time I'm saying this because many black people at that time were saying, straighten your hair, try to mm-hmm. look as much like the oppressor so they will accept you. I was making a decision. No, I'm not doing that. After how these people are treating me, there's no way. Mm-hmm. But then even to my own community, I was not considered beautiful. Mm. There were boys in my school who would say I was ugly because mm. I wouldn't wear my hair a certain way or my skin. I, I would have got black people call me monkey. Oh, I was told that I was not pretty, that my black skin wasn't pretty, that my kinky hair was not pretty. And the more they did it, the more I would embrace it. Mm. Even though internally I was feeling horrible inside. Sure. Right? Feeling un- sure. unappreciated, unbeautiful. I go to Howard University. My minor was theater. I minored in theater. Mm. And a teacher in one of my theater classes has us read Antigone. And that thing changed all of my wow. past experiences into wow. something so beautiful, so empowering. I was like, I didn't even know you, sister, but that's what I was doing. Right. I was standing on what I knew was just and right. You're not going to be in this free country and tell me my black skin isn't valuable. It's not as equally as important. Mm. You're not. I didn't understand, but that's what I was doing. And so when I read Antigone at 18, 19 years old at Howard, it made that experience something I value. Wow. What a testimony. You know, and so this is why classics is important to me. This is why I try to get my people to read them mm-hmm. because being introduced to them, as you said about your experience as a Mexican, mm-hmm. Mexican American, trying to find your way home. Mm-hmm. Classics like Antigone help me understand that the battle I've had to fight as a black woman, I used to, take pictures, I don't do it anymore, from my my K through 12th grade years and hide them or cut them up. Mm. 
when I met Antigone, I now look at those pictures yeah. with pride, wow. with love, with beauty. I, I now go back and say, I was so beautiful back then to come through those experiences loving myself. And so Antigone saying, you're, you're going to bury my brother. I will bury mm-hmm. my brother. I will lay mm-hmm. my life down for what I know to be right. Yeah. And I will stand in the face of anyone who wants to tell me a false narrative about who God has created me to be. Mm. And so everyone, like you see, now we both crying on here. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think that this this is why. And so we found, and so you and I both discovered Du Bois, mm-hmm. who gave voice to these experiences that we're sharing. Yeah. And like him, when he's talking about dancing in gilded halls, when I summon, mm-hmm. I summon Aristotle and what soul I will, and they all come graciously with no scorn or condescension. Yeah. The, you and I, different life experiences, very similar yeah. life experiences. Yeah. But Du Bois is telling you and I that I too have found something in these texts yes. that have helped me navigate this world that has made it very hard for me to be. Yeah, I was thinking we would go back to King, but now you've opened a new path, and I want to give you a chance, one, one, one more chance here in this interview to, okay. to help me think through uh, this theme that you've kind of raised, and in a way, it's kind of erupted. In a way, I, I wonder if there's even a sense in which this theme has been given to us uh, from 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 somewhere else, providence or something which is um, the relationship between the freedom we were talking about and the need and the experience of a kind of healing. Uh, Because sometimes the freedom narrative can fall into a kind of uh, easy, uh, escapist uh, sensibility. And and, Because I have friends who are like, Sam, I just don't get why you just won't put down the Play-Doh. And I say, well, it's about freedom. And they're like, yeah, but there's a lot of other books about freedom out there. And there's there's ones by people who look more like you and who represent oh, your community oh, and others oh. and stuff. And I was like, yeah, but, but you know, I, I'm just, I'm pretty ride or die with Plato, you know? Yeah. And, 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 uh, uh, Rosa and Montas would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, and I, and sometimes I ask myself, like, what's my problem? Like, is yes. this, is this my, <laughs> is this, is this my, my inability to get outside of the imaginative, constraints of, of my own teachers or whatever, but I don't teach Plato like any of my teachers. Like I, you know, my Plato is a different, yes. different kind of guy. Um, all that to say that, um, I think people don't realize, uh, and certainly the ones who are now using the term woke or wokeness as a pejorative, they don't realize that, that, that liberation and freedom are, are a healing project. And yeah. so I'll, I'll share with you, something that really hit me like a ton of bricks, which is even within my own developmental story, which started in 1982. And I grew up in the Catholic church and, you know, a, a lot of mixed cultural spaces, sure. Including, you know, for a while we were, we were in a, a, very, a primarily Puerto Rican community, which as, as Mexicans, it's not ours, but it's close, mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I was just in New York and all the Dominicans were like, Hey Poppy. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Um, you know, um, but, but in, in a lot of, and I was educated certainly within a, you know, predominantly, um, you know, white spaces. And, uh, and I remember as a boy, 
Because, you know, I was living in Mexico for a certain period of time, going to school where Mexican colorism was often at work and where the tone of my skin gave me enough to be Ooh. a member of the community and not too much to be a member of a particular side of the colorist Whoa, community where those who presented more darkly or whatever, yep. either they showed working classes or they showed more indigenous mestizaje and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I had that and that I navigated pretty naively, to be honest. I wasn't thinking about any of it really at the time. I see it now. Yes. But then I remember explicitly in the religious community we were in, as ironic and weird as it'll sound being in Mexico and all, we were really the only ethnically Mexican family who was part of the leadership community there. And we looked more like the people that that community was serving. Oh. And even within that, you had some dynamics. Wow. And I remember distinctly seeing a picture and I, I know the image, I'm holding a candle, altar serving next to two of the of the sons of one of the, the the families that was key in there and with that with that altar boy white uh, uh garment and stuff i mean i just looked <laughs> like a freaking aztec out there <laughs> compared you know in relative uh relief of a number of different uh um factors fabric and also my 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 peers there and I remember, gosh, I've never even said this out loud. I remember hating the way I looked. Mm. I remember hating my own skin. Mm. Mm. And now I know, and I just made this comment the other day because there was a picture uh, yes. of, of some of us out, out and I was like man I am I didn't realize I still had it I'm still brown um and I said it in a very different tone and very different register and to me the transformation and the liberation of being able to see oneself yes with love with love as opposed to seeing oneself with a certain kind yes. of self-hatred with a certain kind of inherited yes. colorism yes and even internalized racism yes I don't I, f I feel like this is one of the missing realities that is super common, mm -hmm. which is I always try to tell people that racism is definitely a problem of, of um, uh, an external problem. Yes. Uh, yes. Without external folks feeling a certain way about uh, uh, other folks, we wouldn't have racism. Right. But I say, but there's also an internal racism. And this is where it becomes yes. most, and so, yes. to me, most dangerous, which is when you don't need an external person to make you hate yourself. That's it. When you can, you can do the the work of hatred all on your own. Yes. Yes. Ooh. And to me, the project of liberation is a project Ooh. of healing in the specific sense yes. of disabusing certain people from that relationship to themselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and allowing them to have 
an, an affirming relationship even to their own bodies, even yes. to their own flesh and bone yes. and fiber and liquids, yep. as Ralph Allison puts yep. it, you know? Yep. And, yep. Um, yep. So I wonder if you could say a bit about this relationship between freedom, which we've talked about, and healing in the classics, in the books we've talked about, in the type of educational work that you're doing and that I aspire to do, and, and in particular within just the experience of those of us who have felt um, at any time a, uh, you know, Augustine says, I've become a problem to myself. Mm -hmm. and, and now he's an African man saying yes. this, living in a time where yes. he was living in Rome, mainly yes. writing primarily, yes. but yes. I don't think he had the same problems in mind. But in a way, I have become a problem to myself is a Ooh. different way of talking about the problem of the 20th century, which would be yep. the problem of the color line. Yep. We, yep. We've become a problem to ourselves for historical reasons, um, not just because of the external oppression from the oppressor, but also yes. from this inner oppressor that many of us have permitted and even invited to yes. take hold of our hearts. And so I wonder what you might say about this relationship between freedom and healing. Yes. Okay. I want to start off answering that. Um, okay. I want to share a quote by Zora Neale Hurston to, okay. answer, to start off the answer to this question. And she says, Sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it does not make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can any deny themselves the pleasure of my company? It's beyond <laughs> me. Yeah. And I have been on a journey. I, I love what you're talking about as we can do the work of hatred within our own selves. Mm. We can also do the work of healing within our own self. And for me, yes. this is really important to share because my journey to loving how God has made me has come, it's been a journey between me and God. It's not because the world has changed. You know, I mean, in my 20s, I dated a guy that says, you know, you're cute for a dark-skinned girl. I, I, particularly, I, I usually like light-skinned women. Oh, like, gosh. can you imagine getting yeah. that? You know, so, yeah. and that's not that long ago. Like, that is not oh, that yeah. long ago that I had that yeah. someone say that to me. And you still see it. You still see this preference, this colorism issue. And yeah, so if we bag. wait, right? <clears throat> yeah. If we wait for society to love my, if I wait for society to make, to love my black skin, if I wait for my community to value dark skin and kinky hair, or if I wait for white people to value it and call it beautiful enough to make it into a Disney princess, that's just a little side note I want to throw in there. <laughs> uh, instead of making her a frog for most of the movie. Uh, <clears throat> you know, if, if, if I, that's not going to happen. So there, there has to be a work that we do within ourselves. And so, Mine has been a very personal journey. So for, for me, and I consider the Bible a classic text, it definitely mm. illuminates the other classic texts because sure. it gives you a window into what life was like in ancient times. Whether you believe the Bible is or is a, a myth like the Odyssey or an actual historic text, and I you know I believe it's a historic text, but you can I still can you can still value it for its right. storytelling and how right. it illuminates the culture. Right. And so one of the greatest scriptures that helped inspire me was Psalms 139, which says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, mm -hmm. right? And I have my students at the school say that every single morning. They, they quote Psalms 139 from memory wow. every morning before we start our day. 
because my mom made me quote it. She knew I was huh. wrestling with self-esteem. And I would tell her, she, she was, we were very close. I would tell her what I was going through and she couldn't make me feel differently about myself. So she gave me this passage. Right. And, and she may have not known how deeply, but when I was in those moments of doubting myself, doubting my value, this, that verse would come to mind that if the God of the universe says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, then they must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go through this personal journey. So that's the first, this is again a story of how literature, especially ancient literature is so powerful and how mm-hmm. it speaks into our current experiences. So that's, that's the, that's one piece. Then I've shared with you doing the work internally by embracing Antigone. Well, then I got really into just all of the Greek tragedies, especially mm-hmm. ones where the women were empowered. Mm-hmm. You have Medea, you know, it, you, I, I don't see Medea as actually a tragedy. It, it is, but there's a victory <laughs> in it for her at the end, Yeah, you know, yeah. a real, real, real tainted victory. But what I got from, and she's another one I see as a black woman. I don't know why. I just, these women, I, that when I read them, that's what I see. And I think mm-hmm. it's because, um, that struggle of having your heart broken by someone you fell in love with and betrayed and denied. I've experienced that. And her choosing a terrible path to get back at him for that at the same time communicates that I can, I can be the one to heal myself Hmm. and overcome. I don't like the way she did it. I'm not, don't anyone say, Oh, you should go kill your children to get back. at people. That's not what I'm saying. But, (laughs) but there's this, this for me, Coming in, I, I started falling in love with Greek tragedy at Howard as a freshman and, so, and, and sophomore when I embraced theater as, when I took on theater as my minor, I just felt, I almost wish I had just made that my major, but mm. um, at the time, but I came to really love, because I had to work through the Greek tragedies and in it, I just found, because I felt my life was tragic. Mm. You know, I already have the history of my ancestors. I knew my history as a black person. I mean, my dad sure. was one who made us watch Roots every year. So I mm. knew that piece, you have that heaviness of knowing the tragedy of your people in this country. And mm. then you have your actual current life experiences of feeling the rejection and, and oftentimes the even hate of this country towards you as a black person. So you have that burden. And then you deal with the rejection of love, wanting to feel loved by a, a guy as, mm. as a teenager and realizing that at that time period, they preferred light-skinned women with straight hair. And so I felt up to that time, my life was tragic, yeah. right? And so um, finding the Greek tragedies gave voice to what I was feeling. Mm. But then at the same time, they showed me that I can make it through this tragedy and live a noble life or some type of a life of victory. So very, I know that seems kind of strange, but that is how I began to really connect with Greek tragedy. And I read them all the same way, seeing my tragic life experiences up to that point and then realizing that I can make my life in well. It's probably why I've come to really fall in love with the works of Chinua Achebe and the tragedy he writes in his. It's a, it's a similar process. Mm. Um, of that. And so I think that 
now sharing my experiences of how various ancient literature has helped me navigate this life um, is what I want to teach our children yeah. to do. Because, see, I didn't have access to this literature until after right. the pain. Right. What would have happened, and I spoke on this when I, I spoke at a, um, was it Arizona? I spoke at a classical charter school, um, and <clears throat> I had to change my talk because when I arrived there, I found out a student um, who had just graduated had been had died. Oh, and he was yeah. the, the the community was very broken up when I came in. Yeah, I said, "Well, yeah. I can't just say my typical." Yeah, and what I did was, I that night before before I had to speak, I changed it to what we're talking about right now: mm. how we can find inspiration in the old text. And I shared a little bit about testimony on how I wish I had had these texts as a teenager. Mm. When I read Roosevelt Montaz's book Rescuing Socrates and how he gained access to these texts as a teenager, or even when I read uh, Danielle Peralta's article, people, I love that article. I know people are struggling with some of his very um, intense perspectives, Um, (laughs) but if you could just, if you could just enjoy the story as you would read the Odyssey, he too, as a child found some type of a, a, a reprieve in this literature. And, And that mirrors what Douglas said. It mirrors what Du Bois has said. It mirrors mm-hmm. what Phyllis Wheatley has said, that mm-hmm. in my darkest times, these texts gave me some perspective. They helped me mm-hmm. navigate it. And so I would say that classical education, teaching classically, teaching young people to read the canon, especially the ancient texts, is really imperative because we are also providing tools for young people that will help them with the pain you and I have said we've experienced <laughs> growing up. Mm-hmm. In this crazy, beautiful, wonderful, frustrating country called America. Yeah. And so I, I want to get, I didn't get these texts too much later in my life. Mm-hmm. What I'm hoping now, and I see it as my children talk, that they are finding inspiration in the literature. Mm-hmm. And this is why K-12, why I'm so passionate about it is because I see what it does to me, it has done, done for me as a grown woman. And I saw what, I, and in my research, I'm seeing what it's done for people who are younger than myself. Mm-hmm. So I want to give this gift to them that was left for us by the ancestors. And so that, and that is where your liberation comes from. Matter of fact, Douglas became free in that moment. And I know people are going to wrestle with that. They're going to wrestle with me saying he found freedom in the works of the canon. And I don't know how to say it any differently than that. And I'm sorry. And I know people are going to be like, I'm not invited to the cookout now for saying something like that. But I, that's what he said. Mm-hmm. He said, when I had when I had come to a place of thinking I would forever. Oh, my gosh, it's almost 10, 11 o'clock. Um, I have a class at 11. But um, when I thought I would forever be a slave, I found these texts. He was young at that time. He was a teenager at that moment. He was 12 when he got the Colombian orator. And these texts helped liberate him before his body was liberated. And so what you and I are talking about is the power of these texts to liberate our minds and our souls as we engage in conversation with people who have gone through similar experiences who came before us and how they found their way out.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 2, and special thanks to Anika Prather. Folk Phenomenology Season 2 is generously supported by Whippenstock Publishers, St. Mark's College Center for Christian Engagement, Give Us This Day, Solidarity Hall, Black Catholic Messenger, U.S. Catholic, Commonweal Magazine, and the Juan Diego Network. Be sure to see the show notes for links to our sponsors. Also, please share this episode and subscribe on your favorite app or platform, and also find Folk Phenomenology on Twitter and Facebook. Folk Phenomenology is hosted and produced by Sam Rocha, that's me, with a soundtrack by Aaron Ross Hansen. Now go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't know, word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. Mm-hmm. Where you find it. Mm-hmm. Where you find it. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Well, it's the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.
and do that well as well. It's a challenge, but if I love it, I can do it. So we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there, my